0: we must be reminded that First Peter is this wonderful letter of encouragement to the church. It's encouragement to the church in a time of suffering and in a time of persecution. And so we can remember that as Peter is encouraging these faithful Christians, he's also encouraging us. God is encouraging us through his word here. And as we come to verse 10 of the first chapter, we're going to understand here. Now Peter's going to explain to us and, and encourage the Christians not only where their salvation comes from, but the value of that salvation. Amen? So if you can, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 today. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, your word is so relevant and it reminds us, dear God, that we have been bought with a price. Your church, Father, are those that you have purchased on the cross as your son died for our sins. And there's a value here. Even though it's a free gift from you through grace, there is a value to what you give us. So God, I pray through the words of your servant Peter that you would speak to us even now in 2018. God, that you would challenge us to be reminded of where our salvation comes from. And be reminded that those who came before us who preached the good news were preaching also for our sake. And I pray, God, that you know, some, somehow this, these words would would just inspire us today, to encourage us today, to give us hope, to give us peace, security, stability in your arms as our Father. And I pray, God, that right now Your name would be glorified as we speak Your words, as we glean Your truth from Your Scripture, as we live as Your people. May we bring You glory. So, God, please allow this moment to be Your moment. Allow Your words, Father, to be heard clearly. Teach us all that we need to know, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You remember here uh, the first letter of Peter, he's writing to the church that has been scattered in the first century. Uh, these were just the first few decades following Christ's resurrection and ascension back to heaven. And now the church has come under the persecution, of, and we, we, we know historically at this time, this was under the Emperor Nero, right? Nero was that lunatic Roman emperor that... You know, the, the, the stories and the movies that we know about casting Christians to the lions, right? This is the time period we're talking about. Peter is writing to those Christians who had scattered to the outer uh, boundaries, the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, trying to find safety. And they had, wherever they could go, they gathered together in small groups of Christian community. But even there in these outer realms of the, of the Roman Empire, there was persecution and suffering. These Christians were at this point now considered criminals in the Roman Empire. And so the first part of the chapter of First Peter that we've looked at for the last few weeks, we've been reminded that Peter wants to encourage them, your salvation is not of your doing, it is of Christ and Christ alone. God has redeemed you and saved you. His mercy has pulled you out of your circumstance of sin And through that, you can find joy. Do you remember that? The joy inexpressible. That all of those around you who are persecuting you do not understand this joy that you have. Now in verse 10, he comes and he reminds them that this salvation that they possess, the salvation of which they have a joy, is a salvation that was preached long ago in the Old Testament prophets. (coughs) Have you ever pondered that? The salvation that you understand and possess right now, number one, do you understand it is not of your doing, not of your making, it is of God who has changed us and redeemed us through the blood of His Son. But have we, have, do we ever stop and ponder those who came before us and preached salvation and preached the future glory of Christ, knowing that even those that we do not know who come after us, they have a reward coming that they don't even see yet. But even the Old Testament prophets saw the truth of Christ even then. Isn't that amazing? You ever pondered that in the Old Testament? How many people actually enjoy reading the Old Testament? You know, when you start... A lot of people, they they start off in January of every year, I'm going to read the Bible through, and by the end of January or February, they get to the book of Leviticus. (laughs) And then they stop. (laughs) Okay? But you know what, even even in the book of Leviticus and all of those rules and things that God laid down for His people, even in the Mosaic law, there is Christ. All of that is pointing to a future glory of redemption that God promised in the very beginning of time. When Adam and Eve failed God and they fell from His grace and they fell into sin and rebellion against God, even then God said... I'm sending hope. Y'all remember that? And from the time of Adam all the way up, even till today, that hope in Christ is true. Now ponder this. As Peter is writing to these Christians at their time of persecution and suffering, remember, they are facing death here. They are facing criminal charges and persecution here. They are living in a hostile, alien environment. They don't belong where they live. None of us as Christians belong in this world. And we feel like we're outcasts and aliens. But in this context, these Christians are facing sufferings that you and I as American Christians have really not faced at all. But he reminds them here in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, remember, this is the salvation that he says, you have a joy that is inexpressible. You can't describe this joy of salvation to those who do not know it. There are no words to fully describe the love of God and the joy that we have in his mercy, right? So concerning that salvation... He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 10 really points to a, a biblical truth that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this salvation that we now have. See, the prophets of the Old Testament were fixated on God's promise of salvation. As the Old Testament prophets were prophesying, as God rose up men to to be his voice the old testament prophets who were god's prophets men of god prophesying as God led them. And their words and their teachings God used to develop His Scriptures, His Bible. The Old Testament is full of prophecy of the Old Testament. But what are they prophesying for? They're not prophesying for riches and glory and end times, whatever that we have now. They're prophesying about the coming hope of salvation. But did they know who they were prophesying about? No. Did the Old Testament prophets know that at a particular point in history, at a particular date on the calendar, there would be a young Virgin Mary and a young man Joseph who, lived, who stopped in Bethlehem because there was no place for them to stay and they gave birth to a little baby by the name of Jesus in a stall? Not one prophet of the Old Testament knew those details. Think, have you wanted that? But guess what? God said these Old Testament prophets were t- prophesying and fixated on the promise of salvation. They were fixated on the birth of Jesus Christ, even though they didn't know the details of Jesus, the name. They didn't know the details of the birth. They didn't know the historical context of which it would happen. They just knew that God promised. Right? Has anybody here ever looked forward to a fulfilled promise that somebody gave you? I am promising that I'm going to come and mow your yard. Anybody ever promised you that? And then four weeks later they don't show up and the grass is like up to, have they, but then they still come and they fulfill their promise? You ever had that happen to you? When somebody promises, we, we in the modern world, when somebody makes a promise, we expect them to come at a particular time and in a particular place and in a particular way. We have standards. If you promise something, Yes, you do need to fulfill this, the promise. And yet, but you better do it X Y and Z. What if somebody made a promise, but how it was going to be fulfilled was a mystery? How many of us would trust that friend or trust that family member? You know, they promised that they would come and mow my yard. I don't know when they're coming, but they promised. Would we still trust them in that? Or would we look out the window and watch the grass growing taller and, and, and grumble underneath our voice and say, well, they promised, but they've let me down. You see where we're going? Where do we have the greatest trust? Where is faith the strongest? Is faith the strongest in knowing the details of how something is going to happen? Or is faith stronger when you don't know the true end of how it will be? Ladies, your husband may promise to fix the leaky faucet. He may have promised two years ago. But if he's a good husband and you trust him, he's going to get it done. Men who have a leaky faucet to fix, maybe you need to get going. See where we're going? Trust and faith requires not fully understanding how... It's going to happen. We have to trust that. And so these Old Testament prophets, God spoke through them. And they were fixated not on how salvation was going to be or how God was going to answer his promise. They were fixated on the promise. And that's what Peter's telling us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, concerning the salvation that you Christians now know, concerning the salvation of which you have joy, the prophets, they knew it too. They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. How many of us would do that? Are any of us looking forward to the generations that come after us? And we may not know exactly what God has planned for the next generation or maybe the next three or four generations. How many of us right now in this moment are thinking ahead that God is using us right now for something that's going to happen after we're gone? Or is salvation and grace that God gives us only for us now? God loves us where we are. He redeems us through the blood of Christ where we are. But this grace that He pours out on us, we see in the Old Testament prophets, they knew that even though they were part of God's grace, God does love the Old Testament prophets and He redeems them in their faith. They also know that all that they were working toward was for a future glory. That the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. We see this in Isaiah all all throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter forty-five, chapter forty-nine, specifically chapter fifty-three. All of the book of Isaiah is prophesying and looking forward to the coming Christ. We can look in in John chapter. Flip over to the book of John chapter ten for me. The book of John chapter ten. Even John. uh, (coughs) Excuse me. uh, Book of John chapter ten. The words of Christ here in verse sixteen. Jesus speaking about him being the good shepherd. And and, and actually, let's move up to verse uh, verse seven. Let's start in verse seven and read down. Let's see what the words of Jesus have to say here about the sheep. Well, this, is, this passage in verse 16 has been taken so out of context by so many teachings over the years. Our fellow Mormon brothers and sisters will take this, act, well the fellow Mormon, our the Mormons will take verse 16 here and they will say that they are part of the church because Jesus is fulfilling this verse by coming to America and having a second revelation. And so now we have the, the tablets that Joseph Smith wrote. That's, they, they look to this now. I'm going to argue that that's false. Okay, I'm going to argue that's false, and I misspoke by saying that they are brothers and sisters or not, because they're taking this verse out of context. Jesus is not saying I'm going to have another revelation uh, for a fold that is not here, the other sheep. That's not what he's talking about here. I think this text is talking about in First Peter chapter one verse ten. These Old Testament prophets who had the, who spoke of this grace that was for someone else. And that's us. You see the point here? Even Isaiah, again, like I said, prophesied about this. It was not about a salvation that Isaiah would know. It was about a salvation uh, that Isaiah understood would come. Isaiah and all the other prophets foretold Christ's grace and it was expressed in His coming. They were diligent to know what full revelation might be. Whereas we, in, in, in this time of history, we look back and we have the complete revelation through Christ. There is nothing more to be added to it. Amen? But ponder this. If you were in, in the Old Testament, before Christ's birth, death, and resurrection, what would you have cling to? These prophets, they they embraced what was yet to come. They embraced the, the truth that there will be a revelation. And that was their salvation. Now, verse 11. These Old Testament prophets inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 10 tells us that these Old Testament prophets, they they inquired about this revelation of God in the Spirit of Christ. So even the Old Testament prophets, according to Peter, they possessed the Spirit of Christ as God granted it to them, and the Spirit that was in them. You see that in verse 11? The Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets, and it indicated what was to come. That's interesting here in verse 11, as Peter is talking about these prophets. Notice that he's not writing here in verse 11 or or claiming that their doctrine or their scriptures that they were writing, their own personal teachings, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about their own personal desire. As Old Testament prophets, as men of the... Age before Christ's coming, there was a personal desire, a craving for God's fulfilled promise. So he's saying here that these prophets were filled with Christ's spirit. And they were looking forward to Christ's coming. But notice here in verse 11, what was it that they were also looking forward to? They were prophesying and imagining and desiring Christ's coming, knowing also, predicting in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament prophets knew that when the promise of God came in Christ, that promise of God that came would not be some fancy, comfortable, soft redemption. They knew that Christ would suffer. Isaiah the prophet, when you read in there, he, he he's very specific in, in his predictions and in his prophecies that the Lamb must suffer. Even the Old Testament prophets knew that Christ would suffer. They were not looking forward to a Messiah that was holy and glorious and simple and, and, and fun and, and peaceful. He knew that... Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. So for the Old Testament prophets, suffering was not a surprise. So Peter here in verse 11 of chapter 1 is encouraging the Christians, even the Old Testament prophets knew that you would suffer. Even the Old Testament prophets who knew that Christ would suffer knew that you too would be suffering. So he's reminding them in chapter 1 here of his letter, the suffering that you're going through, Christians, is something that is not a surprise. You knew through the Old Testament prophets that suffering would come. Now, how does that help you navigate hardships as a Christian? How does that help us navigate the sufferings that we go through, not just life, I mean, let's just be real. And Peter even speaks to this. We'll get into this more as we go through the book of First Peter. Peter makes a real distinction on suffering. There's two different kinds of suffering. We suffer for the evil that we do. Consequences for bad choices. But there's also suffering for being righteous in Christ. What Peter is encouraging the Christians here is the sufferings that you suffer because of Christ. He said, if you've if you've just made foolish choices and you've just done stupid things, you're going to suffer stupidly. And that's God's love for us. Do we love our children when they fail? Do we allow them to suffer the consequences? To learn from that? Yeah. On the job, do we have hopefully wise? supervisors that allow us to make a few mistakes in the early days of our employment so that we learn and grow and become better employees? Hopefully. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the suffering that we have because of Christ. Because if we suffer in the name of Christ, then that is suffering we do not deserve, but we are promised it. Now that right there is the rub, isn't it? Wait a minute, God. I and bought by the blood of your Son Jesus, you have redeemed me in His name. Why is it that you're giving me suffering that I don't deserve? I've not done anything wrong here. That's that's kind of a tension. And Peter is writing here telling the church, listen, even the Old Testament prophets, they were in the Spirit of Christ, and they predicted the sufferings of Christ. They knew that you too would suffer. But then in verse 11 he says, these predicted sufferings of Christ bring subsequent glory. So even the suffering that the Christians go through will produce glory. Now, this spirit of Christ that was in the Old Testament prophets, this spirit of Christ is what directed the prophets to desire salvation. They were longing for the salvation they knew were going to come at some point. They had this spirit of knowledge here of what God was doing. And so the Old Testament prophets, according to Peter here, the Old Testament prophets were actually witnesses to the present church. They were witnesses to what the church here in 1 Peter was going to go through. Peter's saying, everything that you're suffering as the church now, at the hands of those who do not know Christ and who avoid Christ, those who persecute you, the Old Testament prophets, they were witnesses seeing this coming. They knew what your present situation would be. Hopefully, that's words of encouragement to someone who is suffering. The Old Testament prophets that these Christians would have respected and held dear, even these, the words of the Old Testament prophets, they actually give me comfort even now in my affliction. So Peter is even actually, and really what he's doing, he's steering the Christians in the midst of your suffering, go to God's word. The New Testament at this point was not completed yet. And so the Scriptures that the churches had, they had copies of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and then they were adding to it these letters that the, the apostles were writing, and, and so Peter became part of that. And so he was saying these Old Testament prophets that you read, hold dear to them. They are giving you in comfort. They are giving you witness that Christ would suffer, and, such, and, and likewise, you as the church would suffer. Now, does that sound like a lot of the preaching that we have in the churches today? Right? How many people go flocking to a church that, that says, you know what, the Bible says you're going to suffer. How many people are going to stick around for that? What is it? We, we flock again to the comfort. We, we flock to the make me feel good gospel. But you know, even Peter here says there is a joy in the salvation that no one can understand. Even in the midst of our suffering for Christ, we are joyful in that. That's something the world can't understand. Amen? Are we bought by the blood of Christ? Yeah. Are we suffering for His name? I don't know. I've heard it said many times before. I don't know if I fully agree with this, but I see the point if you as a Christian are not facing persecution because you are a Christian, um, many people will argue, are you really living as a Christian? Or are you being complacent in the world, trying to get along with the ways of the world? I don't know. I mean, there, there, I think there's some truth to that. And the question, is, and I had this conversation earlier this week with a, a gentleman on the phone, and I think there's a lot to this. Think about this. Why is it that the American church really is not suffering? I mean, do we do we do we invite suffering? No. I mean, that's that's foolishness, right? Let's just go out there and do stuff to make people mad and cause us persecution. No, that's that's crazy. Because when you do that, you're only trying to glorify yourself. Oh, I'm a victim, right? We don't want to play victim and and bring glory to ourselves. We we want to live for Christ and be Christ's church. And then if we live that way, persecution is going to come automatically. And then who gets the glory? God gets the glory. This is not glorifying the individual. This is glorifying God. This is glorifying His gospel. But in the American church, in the West, right, what is it that that is different? Why do we not face the sufferings that many of our brothers and sisters around the world in the church are suffering right now? Is anybody familiar with Voice of the Martyrs, that wonderful ministry? They, I mean, there are, if you ever get a chance to read any of their their updated stories, I mean, there are brothers and sisters around the world right now who are sitting in prison simply because they're preaching the gospel. We've got anybody here sitting in an American jail because they're preaching the gospel? I don't think it's as prevalent here. Why is it that the American church does not suffer the way the church in India suffers or the church in in Africa or in Middle Eastern countries suffer. Why is that? Because I think it's a lot because we in the American church, we are so worldly. And those who suffer for Christ's name in other parts of the world who do not have the prosperity that we have, do not have the worldly goods that we have, all they have is Christ. They don't have any of the distractions that we've got. So they're, that's all they possess, that's all they own, and that comes out truthfully and honestly, and people will reject that and persecute that, and the Christians will suffer. Now, do we go out, like I said, do we now change our lifestyles in the West so that we invite suffering? No. But what is it that we worship more than we worship Christ? Here's a great example. If you can do this as a discipline, just do it for one 24-hour period and actually record how much time you spend doing every little task, including being on your phone, Facebook, Internet, television, whatever it is. And then compare that to how much time you spend in God's Word in that day and how much time you spend in prayer in that day. And every one of us, myself included, I think we will be awakened to a reality that we're not conscious of. The reason that we do not suffer in the name of Christ is because, honestly, we have other things that we worship. And that is what comes out in us. If we, if we embrace Christ fully... I think everyone would see Christ oozing out of us, and they would just, Ew, "What's going on with you?" Or they would embrace it. Or the, it's just, you see where we're going? We will suffer for the name of Christ if we are in Christ. We will actually experience comfort and security if we embrace the world. And Peter here is writing to a church that suffers. Now, let's close out in verse 12 of First Peter chapter 1. Writing even further here about these Old Testament prophets. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is an interesting text. Peter's reminding us here in verse 12 that these Old Testament prophets, there, was, there were things revealed to them that they knew were not serving themselves, but they were going to serve the future church. These prophets, they knew this desire of salvation was not something that they would obtain. They knew that it was not for them, it was for, for a future generation. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 real quickly. Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews, who I'm going to argue is Paul. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to flip to the end of the chapter and see how it closes out. But Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the chapter of faith. The heroes of the faith, these Old Testament heroes of the faith that are counted as righteous in Hebrews chapter 11, even though they did not know the name of Christ personally, their faith in God's promise God counted to them for their salvation. Here in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. You see that? A lot of times when we're talking about faith, we want to stop at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is a great definition of faith. But the writer here of Hebrews is continuing here in verse 2. For by it, which is that faith that we do not see, for by it the people of old received their commendation. So there in verse 2, the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that the people of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament heroes of the faith, they received their commendation through the faith of things they could not see. They were assured and they were confident of what was going to come. And that is what God counted to them for their salvation. Now, flip over to verse 39 at the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. And speaking about this whole list of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Notice that? And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So even though these Old Testament heroes of the faith, they received commendation, they received their salvation in Christ, they did not receive the fulfilled promise the way we have. We, on the other side of history, have the fulfilled promise of Christ. We know exactly when salvation was granted to us through the blood of Christ. We know the name of Christ, we know the teachings of Christ, we have the gospel, we have the New Testament here to explain it to us. Much of the New Testament looks back to the Old Testament prophets to say, "This is Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament prophets were saying. We have that now. So you and I, we now live in an age where we have less excuse, we have zero excuse for not understanding salvation. The Old Testament prophets had less than us, but their faith in what they did not know would happen, that they did not see. Peter and even the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging, they were they received a revelation from God not for themselves, they received a revelation from God for us. That's amazing, isn't it? So back on 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He continues on and says that all of these things that were announced by the Old Testament prophets, they were preached, they preached the good news through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to us. And what they preached were things into which angels longed to look. Now, what does that mean, that angels longed to look? You and I, we see and know the truths of God, but... The only thing, the only way that we know the truths of God is through, number one, what God has revealed to us through Christ and through His Word. Okay? How many of us actually know the mind of God fully? Anybody? I hope none of us. (laughs) But we, I mean, we do have the knowledge that God has allowed us to know. But how many of us could argue that we know God's mind 100%? I don't think any of us can. The best that we have is that we see God through the world that we live in. The idea is looking through a mirror darkly, we look through the world and see what God has revealed to us in the world. That's how we see God. Do angels have any extra revelation that we don't have? That's a, that's a big theological debate. I think what Peter's saying here in verse 12, angels clearly are in the presence of God and we are not, but do they have a knowledge that is not ours? I don't know. Some, I mean, some ancient, uh, commentators on this passage would say, yes, the angels have a knowledge higher than ours, but I don't know. We have a revelation of salvation that the angels themselves do not experience. An angel cannot experience the salvation through Christ because the, the blood of Christ was not spilled for an angel. The blood of Christ was spilled for you and me, humanity, right? So in one way you could argue here what Peter is saying is that angels have a perspective that we don't have. They, these angels, they long to look upon the salvation that we, that we embrace an angel cannot understand and experience the relationship with Christ that we have. But then on the other hand, angels longing to look. It's like this salvation narrative about how Christ is saving us. It's almost like a spectacle for the angels. Look at what God's doing next, right? Look, God sent His Son. Look what He's doing. All of His promises are coming to be. And they're like they're like spectators watching what God is doing for us. I don't know if that the angels are jealous as much as what Peter's talking about heres they're, they're, they're applauding the whole thing, <laughs> right? Those angels that were jealous are the ones that God cast out of heaven. But the angels that are loyal to God, as he's talking about here in verse 12, those, th- 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 these angels are looking upon things. They desire what we possess because they know they can't have it. Peter implies here that angels desire to see the gospel fulfilled. They desire to see God's glory manifested in this salvation of humanity. That's an amazing thing about salvation, isn't it? Does that help us understand how precious and how valuable salvation is in Christ? I hope so, because that's what Peter's intent is here. You see, the church of Christ, Christians, you and me, we are this magnificent work that the angels are looking upon with awe. Have you ever pondered that? The angels are looking upon redeemed humanity. Not, not, not the unredeemed. They're looking upon the church. They're looking upon those who have experienced salvation in Christ and they are standing there as, and looking upon a magnificent fulfillment of God's promise. Wow. As Peter is writing to the church who is suffering, Imagine hearing these words in the midst of persecution and fear for your life. Christians who gather in fear that the, uh, the army or the police are going to come and kill us or arrest us for being Christians and gathering. Can you imagine how encouraging this would be? Wait a minute. We're meeting in secret. We're meeting in private. But angels are looking upon us and they're they're, they're proud for us and they see what we're doing is magnificent and fulfilling God's promise. So as we gather here on Sunday morning to worship, is that what we're experiencing? is, Is God happy and glorified in our gathering? And angels are looking down upon us from heaven as God is looking down upon us. And they look on Sovereign Grace Baptist Church and they see something that is magnificent and fulfilling the promises of God. That's the value of salvation. Salvation is not something of our own possession. It's not some trophy that we have an entitlement to, right? Right? Trophies are given out now for participation rather than for actually winning. It's like we, we, we are entitled to a trophy. How many people look upon salvation as an entitlement? Peter's reminding the church here in the midst of their suffering, your salvation is so valuable. Your condition, your existence as the redeemed of God, the ones that God poured His mercy out upon, that is so glorious and valuable that the angels look upon it in awe and celebration and wonder. They see it as a magnificent thing. Maybe this week, as we live our lives, as we're running children around for summer activities and going to work, and even the busyness—even now, as we're uh, several of us are, are planning a backyard Bible club coming up here in July, right? There's a lot of busy work to be involved with, right? Are we doing this out of compulsion and drudgery? Are we, are we looking toward a magnificent thing? Salvation in Christ is a glorious, valuable existence. Wow. Let me close this in prayer. Dear God, we do thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as, as we become complacent as a church, as we become complacent as individual Christians, as our family becomes routine, our lives become over-busy, I pray, God, that maybe these words of yours from, from Peter remind us of how glorious salvation in Christ really is. Forgive us, God, where we take this life as a Christian for granted. Forgive us where we become so comfortable that we forget the glory that comes from the suffering that your son went through. The glory that comes from even if we are persecuted for our faith. Forgive us where we do not trust you, even in suffering. Forgive us where our faith fails even in suffering. I pray, God, that we would, as a people, bring you glory. And I pray, God, that our lives would be this magnificent expression of your glory because we have been redeemed by your Son. Keep us humble, Father, so that you receive glory. Forgive us, but bless us. We need you in all things. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Before we close out in a hymn, I really want us to really ponder the value of our salvation. As we as we sing this final hymn, here is what I would like for us to all keep in mind. <coughs> This God of our fathers, this is the hymn that we're singing, hymn number 431. But as we sing that, let's be reminded that those who come before us were teaching us exactly what it is to be in Christ. We're going to sing this final hymn. And after we do that, I'm going to ask you to, to still stick around. We have a guest today, Bill Browning, who is here from God's, God's jail ministry. And he's. Uh, some of us went this week to the Putnam County Jail to kind of learn about ministry in the jail. And uh, Bill's here to maybe talk to us about that and ask her any questions you might have. And I want to give him uh, about 15 minutes or so after we sing. And, uh, and let's just pray and ask the Lord how he wants to use us. Amen? Amen. Let's turn to uh, hymn number 431. Hymn number 431. I can get there. There we go. Hymn number 431, God of Our Father.